0: Friends of the Rocking Cast, you are in for such a treat. I am joined here by Professor Robert Schultz, Professor Emeritus of Roanoke College. Um, He's also a Luther College graduate and a Luther College professor who served at Luther College from 1985 to 2004. Did I get that right, Professor Schultz? That's right. You all are in for such a special treat. We're gonna discuss the real life hero, Bob Hunt, um, who's from Decora, who ser- served in the Pacific War on a submarine, the Tambor. And it's really an incredible tale of adventure and war service and patriotism and romance. And we're just so blessed to be able to be joined by Professor Schultz because he is the co-author of a book, a real life uh, adventure story about Bob Hunt and it's called, We Were Pirates, the book that uh, Mr. Schultz did along with James Schell about the adventure of, that Bob Hunt had in World War II um, in the war in the Pacific. So thank you so much for joining us, Professor Schultz. How are you doing this morning? Very well, thanks for the invitation. Fabulous, thank you so much. Well, first off for our listeners, um, who is Bob Hunt? Um, before we, so we can get started here.
1: Well, many people will remember Bob as the longtime serving head of Parks and Recreation, and we will remember seeing him riding around his bicycle with uh, tennis rackets in the back. Uh, he grew up in Decora for the most part, though his his dad ran a sort of hardware and, and sundries store, so he's. Um, I think qualified as a Decorah native. A lot of people who grew up in Decorah tell me they um, worked for him in Parks Rec or had lessons from him or toward the end even got downhill ski
0: lessons from him on, on the little, the little uh,
1: tow rope uh, ski slope
0: in Decorah. And that was the amazing thing about the gift of this book, um, Professor Schultz, I played tennis, my sister and I, Susie, played tennis with Bob Hunt in the late 80s, and I had no idea that he had this incredible service. And, you know, I think about all these real-life heroes from World War II, especially as it connects to Luther College, you know, Weston Noble at the Battle of the Bulge. I don't know if you know Pastor George Strum. Um, He was a chaplain at Iwo Jima. These just ordinary people with incredible stories and tales to tell. And so that's why I was so amazed to find this book, We Were Pirates, the real life you know, war stories of Bob Hunt. Um, and so what was your connection to Bob Hunt as it relates to his experience in World War II?
1: Well, we lived on Pearl Street in uh, Decorah and Bob was two houses up from us and we knew him well. Um, he... He did things with our kids, as he did with so many uh, Decorah kids growing up. And saw him regularly, and he was he was a neighborhood friend. Uh, after several years, I I published a novel, The Madhouse Nudes, and there was a there was a little article in the Decorah paper about it. And uh, I ran into Bob Hunt on the sidewalk, and he said, "Well, <laughs> so you're a you're an author. You never know who your neighbors are." And I was flattered. And I, I said, yeah, I, I write. And, and he said, well, I, I may have a story for you. People tell, this, tell me this all the time. Yeah. Um, but the next day, he came down with a cardboard box filled with his World War II war souvenirs, including photographs, crew letters, and uh, a diary that he kept um, for which he, he could have been charged with treason. It was, it was very strictly uh, enforced that you did not keep a diary on the sub. Uh, if you got sank, if it came into enemy hands, it, it could be used as intelligence. He had all this stuff, and he said, I think there's a story here.
0: <laughs> to say the least. And, and, so, and so, you know, my dad was a history professor, and you know he was involved with the letters of Chalice Evanson, like Weston Noble, and a lot of the World War II back to the history uh, department at Luther. So this, you know, historians would just sort of jump for joy over this sort of treasure trove. Had anyone ever pored over his primary source documents before this time, or, or was this sort of the first opportunity to, to to reveal these to the world?
1: I'm not aware that he had shared all this stuff uh, with anyone else who took an author's eye or a historian's eye to it. Um, He was involved. He went to reunions, crew reunions, Submariner reunions. Um, I think he was known in those circles as, as having had an exceptional experience, but uh, I think I was the first
0: writer scholar to, um, to work with it at all. And so he offered you this opportunity. When was this? And did you have any trepidation in terms of, you know, th- th- this opportunity? You, your, your book was Madhouse News, um, which was sort of a It was a beautifully written book about a series of letters back and forth. Um, and it was very well received. Did you have any trepidation taking on this topic? sort of shifting gears. It's, it's, it's a very different type of book than The Madhouse News was.
1: Well, I did somewhat. Um, I had published a book of poems. I was a poet and a novelist, a fiction writer. I wrote literary essays, literary reviews. So this was an entirely different kind of book, an entirely different kind of material. And it felt like it would be a big detour And I had other projects that uh, I was involved in at the time. But once I dug into what I had here,
0: um, I knew I just had to do it. It it was quite the treasure trove. And when you got, so when did the conversation occur and how long did it actually take to put together? Because I would imagine, so once you make the commitment, okay, I'm going to take the time, the effort, the resources to make this happen. Just bring our audience through that. How long did it actually take to bring it to life to actually get it published?
1: Oh gosh, it was it was kind of a long process um, because I had a very te- heavy teaching load. Of course, Luther College is a is primarily a teaching institution and. Um, so I had to carve out my writing time around, you know, family responsibilities and the teaching. Um, the first thing I did was to ask Bob to sit down and write out a narrative of his experience. Not worry about word choice, sentences. This was not. This was just going to be raw material. Uh, I needed some overview sense uh, from him, I felt, and so for about a year, I would go on my morning walks for exercise, and I would pass Bob's house, and I would see the light bulb on down in his basement, Um, sort of an unfinished basement, the submariner under the pipes and bare light bulbs, sitting at a typewriter, tapping out his World War II experience. And sure enough, um, several months later, he handed me uh, a good thick stack of papers, uh, single-spaced, typed written, and uh, it was another act of heroism on his part because he didn't fashion himself a writer, but he really wanted to make this book happen. He 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 said, you know, this is so important to me. This is my life. Yeah, exactly. uh, so he did that work, and then I started to organize it. And I went through all of his primary materials. The, the, he was he was in some ways the unofficial archivist of the timbre uh, because he was the longest serving member uh, of the crew, and and so when there were letters, and when there were uh, there was memorabilia, souvenirs, they all got given to Bob uh, for for the. The history of the boat to be told, and all this uh, fell to me, and I began to um, look and see what I had and familiarize myself with it, and then at a certain point, um, I was hired away from Luther by Roanoke College and made a big move, and that was that was a big step in in the in the story of of this book's making as well.
0: And so you, you start this process of putting it together at some point you have a co author um, James Shell. Um, and so how is he brought on board and then we'll get into the actual story itself, which to me there's there's like, as I said in our prep for this interview. I feel like there's it's so good it's like there's like nine or 10 movie scripts waiting to emerge from this book it's one of those types of books. Um, how did James get brought on? And then we'll get into the story itself.
1: Well, I I took a job at Roanoke College because they offered me an, an endowed professorship and a reduced teaching load and more time to write. Our kids were grown. They would both left uh, home. So uh, this was an attractive alternative to me at this point in my career. So I landed in... Uh, Salem, Virginia, in the Roanoke Valley, teaching at Roanoke College. And finally, I had time to uh, devote to writing uh, more time than I'd had previously. Uh, James Shell, I met as an adult student who took a course from me, uh, a literature course at Roanoke. And uh, I was still juggling teaching my own writing projects, and I had this Bob Hunt material. And James was a really good writer and a very literary guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I asked him if he would be interested in drafting some chapters based on this material, um, because I was still looking for some support in in this project that was juggling a lot of balls. And he was happy to take it on. And he would do some drafting and I'd give some feedback and we hit the right tone and and uh, eventually, I started to write chapters that, uh, that I thought I wanted to handle myself. And as, as the relationship evolved, he became a real expert in um, the technicalities of the submarine, um, you know, the engineering, uh, really became an expert. Neither one of us had had a military experience, let alone naval or submariner. Um, And he really boned up, and that was crucial. We needed needed someone who was really willing to do the research there. And, of course, I started reading book after book about the Pacific War and making sure I, I understood as much as possible the whole context of Bob's
0: material. Yeah, and, you know, I'm so glad you guys were involved, because it strikes me that the art of writing history... You know, sometimes professional historians um, get so bogged down in the details that they sort of lose the narrative flow, right? And they have all these arguments about, well, is this, did this happen or that, or what did they actually mean? And so they have all these small ball arguments, but sort of vis-a-vis the public at large, the story is lost. And so for, and I've always felt that some of the best history books are written by journalists because they just understand flow, and I, it's interesting, Bob choosing you. You didn't choose Bob. Bob chose you. And he must have understood that the war, its color, its romance, its fear, its, its stress, had to have a literary aspect to it. So um, I'm so glad you guys, because there are parts of the books where it's like you're on the edge of your seat and you just, you just like, can't believe this really happened. And to someone that you know, so you start this collaboration for the book. And so take our, our audience to how did Bob get connected to the submarine um, task force in the War of the Pacific? Because we, as we talked about in our prep, extremely dangerous duty. What, what appealed to him about being a submariner?
1: Well, when he first went into the service and he enlisted, he and his brother both did, uh, it was depression in decora um, their mother had died uh, bob and and his brother sort of felt like burdens at, at loose ends in decora so they enlisted um, this was before the war started um, enlisted in the navy uh, got basic training uh, he found himself a typist because he could type and he's um, He's up there in the northeast, um, near New London, and he's looking out the window at these subs that are being prepared. Um, he's a really good typist; they like him as a typist. <clears throat> but he says uh, he's got an officer who's working in the same office with him, and says, "Yeah, they're really looking for for uh, people who want to do that service. It's 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 all volunteer." And uh, they're not getting enough takers. And he he jumped at the chance. He didn't want to be a typist. He wanted to be out uh, on boats. And so he volunteered. And and he was, I think, among the first crop of of, uh, people who were trained. And they were trained in the gold S-boats that um, were long, uh, unwieldy, slow, and... uh, that's how
0: he became a submariner. And this is prior to, at this point, um, I think this is 1939, 1940. Is that the approximate time when he entered the service? Yes. And at this point, of course, America's not in war, but we know we're gearing up for war. And what I, what I found, and gosh, I, and as this book came out, I'm sure people came up to you and really talked to you about how unique Bob was as a source because Bob was prior, this is prior to Pearl Harbor, and he was in service almost through the end of the war um, in terms of the number of patrols that he was involved in. Um, As a source, he was almost unique. There were not many people that had his experiences, but so this is prior to um, Pearl Harbor. Talk a little bit about the risks of being a submariner as he um, made that decision? And was he aware that that's what he was getting into? Because I think you had talked about the casualty rate on a a submarine was one in four, is that correct? And of course, casualty, you always talk about casualty, whether you're uh, injured or dead. The casualty most likely means you're dead if you're gonna be injured in the submarine for the most part, unless you're you know, bump into a torpedo or something like that. It was extremely risky service. That's true.
1: That's very true. Um, I don't think Bob was aware of all that. Where he was, the subs were, were at the base. It was his opportunity uh, to get out on the water. Um, but he is absolutely a unique source. Uh, and, and when I took the manuscript to the Naval Institute Press and sat down with their editors and just told them Bob's story they looked at each other and then they looked at me and they said nobody did that yeah exactly Uh, and uh, he was unique in so many ways Uh, when he was when he's in the northeast he took a took a trip over to see the the 1939 World's Fair in uh, uh, in New York City and saw the the Trilon and the Paris Sphere, and you know, the world of tomorrow is going to be yes. a wonderful place. And he he walked by the the, the Polish Pavilion, uh, which talked about you know being and the irony of of that that fair with its its beautiful vision of of land yes. uh, was, was is very poignant to me. When he got on the sub, they uh, eventually had to take it from New London to Pearl Harbor. So he cruised with the boat down the eastern coast, down to uh, the canal, the Suez Canal, and passed into the Pacific. And then went up the west coast and out to um, Honolulu and and the sub base. Um, prior to the war with the uh, battleship row there and and clearly um war preparations going yes. on there
0: and <laughs> and that's and that's i think what makes it so interesting is that sort of take our readers to he was he was on patrol it's my understanding um so he goes out on patrol it's very tense um they get they get some sort of intelligence that the, the Japanese, you know, may be in an offensive operations. They're not quite sure, but then they then they get world that Pearl Harbor happens December seventh, nineteen forty-one. He's not on Hawaii, in Hawaii at that point, but it's my understanding he was there shortly thereafter. So, what connection did he have to Pearl Harbor? And sort of take our readers to what he observed when he was there. Well. Um... <clears throat>
1: He uh, he got put on the USS Tambor, which was the new fleet boat. It was the the namesake of the Tambor class, and this was a huge upgrade over the old S class submarines. So he was he was on the newest, powerful submarine, um, probably in the world at that point, and. They went on a first cruise up to Wake Island <clears throat> to do reconnaissance and to uh, supply uh, the the GIs that were there. And they were actually cruising uh, uh, around Wake Island when the Japanese bombed Wake. And they saw the fires. Uh, Bob was up on the conning tower at night with binoculars. They saw the fires. They communicated with the the soldiers there by radio. Um, And then an aerial bomb was dropped near the timbre. uh, And actually, they took damage. And they started to get a leak in the forward torpedo room, which was Bob's room. He was a torpedo man throughout the war. And so they had to limp back to uh, Pearl Harbor, and and they didn't know how bad it was, and and to what extent it was going to get worse. And of course, they were all alone out there, Uh, and it's it's a big ocean. So they weren't sure they were going to make it back to Pearl. They did, and when they they were escorted into Pearl, and they went around curve after curve uh, in the bay, they saw the unfolding panorama of of the damage after the, the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, the beached battleships, uh, the sunken Arizona, uh, they were still smoking. Uh, Bob was on the number one line crew out on the tip of, of the deck and they were bumping uh, through debris. Uh, there was a thick oil slick they were cruising through. Um, Bob wrote in his journal,
0: Pearl Harbor, what a mess. (laughs) Yeah, wow. And this is so, and the wake attack, and I'm not familiar with the history of that, did that occur nearly simultaneously then with the attack? Was that December 7th, 1941? Is that correct? It was a coordinated attack uh, on the two islands. Yeah. And so Bob is in Pearl Harbor on December eighth, nineteen forty-one? It's a few days before Christmas. It takes them a while to steam
1: down to Pearl Harbor. So it's okay. it's December 22, 23,
0: thereabouts. Shortly thereafter. Yeah. And so if, there he is. He's he's literally an eyewitness to and I hate to bring up Forrest Gump because I mean, he's not Forrest Gump at all, but I just this 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 ordinary person observing the whole breadth and panorama of the war. He's literally at the first shot and he's almost, he, he, he's not, he doesn't stand all the way to 1945, but almost the whole thing. So then all of a sudden world changes and the submarine force at that point, um, they're still sort of developing tactics. Um, and so take the audience to some of these early patrols um, that Bob is engaged in I don't know if I want to use the word disaster, but there was a lot of frustration as the textbook learning that a lot of the submarine commanders had learned um, didn't really match theater, that they were trying to do sort of offensive operations, but they weren't very successful. So if you could just talk a little bit about some of the early frustrations. I I found one really part of your um, book very interesting. This whole risk versus reward, how much do you go by the book And how much do you have tactical improvisation? You know, I remember my old football coach, Dick Weest, he would say, Cole, you don't freelance, right? Well, that's the same thing true in military. You you can't freelance too much, but if you're bound by your your textbook, that can be very inhibiting too. So so talk about these early patrols were not very successful, is my understanding, that there was problems with the torpedoes, there was a problem with tactics, there were sort of incompetent officers. These first months after the war, what what was Bob involved in? And and talk a little bit about uh, the frustrations of some of the crew.
1: Well, there was improvisation and development on all fronts in the Pacific War. Uh, Certainly having all those battleships knocked out. uh, One of the great um, lucky strokes was that the uh, aircraft carriers, for the most part, were out at sea. And so the U.S. developed a... um, a war fighting strategy that involved basically submarines and aircraft carriers. Um, And on the submarine front, uh, the, the existing captains had been trained to approach warily their, um, their targets at depth and to launch a torpedo that would rise and strike the hull from below more or less and this was not a very um effective strategy it was uh, safe for the submarines it played to their strength of stealth but there were multiple problems it was too much of a long shot Um, and then of course you mentioned the the submarine uh, the torpedoes were were malfunctioning and and The the captains got blamed for this, Uh, the people uh, in the brass who uh, had developed these torpedoes were very proud of them and uh, refused to acknowledge that there was anything wrong with them, until finally a submariner went to uh, an island and fired these things into, into a rock wall underwater and showed that they ran much deeper than they were set at. And the magnetic exploders that were supposed to detect the uh, metal hull uh, didn't do so adequately. So these torpedoes were going under the boats and not exploding, and uh, the uh, skippers were getting the blame. It took a year or two before they actually started fixing the torpedoes, and it was um, a really bad situation. At the same time, uh, there were some younger captains who did start to freelance, who started to do night attacks on the surface, whereby they would run ahead of, of a convoy. They would approach within torpedo range on the surface, attempting to stay out of the um, the light of the moon and so forth. And they would get as close as possible and fire and uh, once the torpedoes were fixed, they started to be very effective and uh, What developed then was a strategy of cutting off the oil supply to the home island of Japan because Japan was bringing all the oil up for its war effort from Southeast Asia and so the main the main uh, war fighting channel was from Southeast Asia along the Chinese coast up to um, the home islands of japan and basically the submarines uh choked off uh the supply of fuel and that's what uh stopped uh imperial japan
0: well yeah and of course yeah the the, the subs were a key part of that and you know you you, you identify that in the book where i, I just want to read one page. you said so the early sub this is one chapter of the book one page it says the early sub-commanders were hamstrung by the extreme conservatism and lack of imagination of the Navy's tactical book, which often seemed to view any risk as excessive. Such caution contradicted not only the best use of the submarines, but the adventuresome temperaments of the captains and crews. And here I'm thinking of Bob and, and the later very impressive uh, captain they had, Kefauver, who finally matched the tactical skill with with the with the ability of the of the commanders. But the flip side of that was they were exposing themselves to a significant amount of risk. And that many of the people he would talk about being these great commanders ultimately lost their lives because they were so. You talked about Howard Gilmore, um, Samuel Dealey, Morton of the Wahoo, all were killed in action uh, because they were taking greater risk to achieve what the war aims were. Um, And I think that's just sort of an interesting comment on the relationship between the risk, reward, and the stress that these men were under. Um, so Bob is at Pearl Harbor, but then for those of us who are interested in World War II, he's also connected to the Battle of Midway, um, which was really the pivotal battle in World War II. A lot has been written on this, but he's also an eyewitness to various aspects of Midway. And it's my understanding the Tambor had a, a, a tangential but important contribution to victory in Midway. It's my understanding. So, so take our audience in terms of what, what was Bob doing close to Midway? And maybe for those of us who don't know a ton about history, talk about the, the, the importance of Midway for World War II because it's really in the war in the Pacific, there's before Midway and there's after Midway um, in terms of how important that was for victory in the Pacific.
1: Yes, it really was quite a turning point because uh, Japan made Midway a huge emphasis. If they captured Midway and established an air base there, then they'd bring Berber uh, under pressure. And their goal was to command the Pacific so that the United States and Japan would be in stalemate. and. Uh, Japan would have secured its sphere of influence and uh, America's efforts would have been focused then in Europe um, to defeat Germany. Uh, They almost pulled it off. Uh, Midway was called point luck in the code uh, and it was, uh, there were several points of luck that uh, helped defeat the Japanese uh, attack on Midway. And one of them involved the timbre. Uh, oh, so to stand that um, when Bob was back home in Decora and getting Life Magazine, like everybody else those days, uh, it showed up in his mailbox and there on the cover was this model of the Battle of Midway, constructed by Norman Bel Geddes, the the theatrical designer and also the designer of Futurama for the 1939 World's Fair. And he built these scale models of of the Battle of Midway and photographed them. And there was a huge spread in Life magazine. And on a two-page spread, there's the depiction of the USS Tambor staring off of uh, a bunch of uh, Japanese cruisers and making them believe that somehow they were under attack by a much larger force that had found them out, and it changed the timing of, of their attack such and alerted uh, the U.S. forces to uh, the presence of the invasion force, and it, it changed the timing of the exchange of fighter planes between the uh, aircraft carriers of the US force and the Japanese force. And um, it's ironic, it's lucky, and ironic too that our man, Bob Hunt, was right there in the middle of that. I mean, he is sort of a Forrest Gump character. I mean, if you're gonna write the story of the Pacific War through a, a, a submariner's view, he was in all the places
0: that mattered, usually when they mattered most. Yeah. Well, or, or another example would be, you know, the, doc, the Ken Burns documentary with Civil War, uh, the private that is very prominently featured in that war, that, that's literally there from 1861 through, throughout, and then the one that survives to basically be able to tell the tale, and he certainly was there. And you talk about the stroke of luck Um, one of the amazing things, you know, in terms of history, in terms of how it could have changed, it's my understanding there was essentially five minutes that changed the tide of war when it could have gone either way. And one of the things that happened is my understanding is that one of the, one of the planes saw this lone destroyer that was trailing, And they were thinking, oh, my gosh, they have to be going back to the mothership of these 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 aircraft carriers and was it was it Bob's sub or was it another sub. That somehow was involved in that destroyer being where it was and going back to the fleet of aircraft carriers that ultimately then were destroyed so could could you elaborate a little bit on that one. The destroyer going back to these aircraft carriers, why that was important. And two, what connection, if any, did Bob have in his submarine to that event? Or was it another submarine? Am I getting that mixed up?
1: No, it was Bob's sub, the Tambor, And it was a result of the encounter uh, with the cruisers and uh, the change of course of the uh, carriers that... uh, and the follow-up to that, that helped detach the destroyer from his group. And, of course, the hu- one huge story of the Battle of Midway is the search for the, the, the Japanese um, carriers. And they had all these planes out, in wave after wave. And it was a lucky stroke that one pilot saw this one destroyer, followed it up. And located the the carriers and created the whole timing whereby uh, the uh, U.S. planes were launched off the decks of the U.S. carriers and were uh, able to make an effective attack on on the uh, carrier. So it was basically a carrier war that the U.S. won by several strokes of luck that allowed
0: them to get in the first punch. Wow. And, and as my understanding, there were four carriers. That lone destroyer led them back to the carrier fleet, and three of them were knocked out because one of the confusions in the fog of war that happened with the, the Japanese um, commander is they had to refuel the planes because they had thought there was going to be one scenario where they were going to attack with torpedoes, or they, were going to, they needed to switch the um, the the bombing uh, material on the planes. And so they were just literally sitting ducks. And within the stroke with this carrier that, or this destroyer that Bob was connected to, three of them are knocked out. And it's my understanding for the rest of the war, they did not have that really offensive capability to really threaten Pearl Harbor or Midway or any of that outer rim of the Pacific. Am I getting that right?
1: That's absolutely right. And um, the Japanese uh, commander there, had to make several decisions about whether their strike force was going to be loaded with land bombs for a strike on the midway base or um, naval bombs to, to strike at the, uh, the carriers. And so they caught them in mid exchange with uh, fuel lines, with armaments uh, on the lower decks and on the upper decks and, um, they became firebombs once they were struck by um, the aerial torpedoes and the uh, dive bomb uh, bombers that, uh,
0: that found the fleet. Wow, that's incredible. And, you know, it's one of these things, the book just keeps on getting better and better, because we got Pearl Harbor. We got, well, we got the lead up to the war. We got Pearl Harbor. We had the Battle of Midway. And then there's the movie scene. And that's not even the best part of the book. The best part of the book, as I see it, is this just sort of, you know, nail biting, teeth clenching part where Bob is in the South China Sea with the tambour. They're hunting these commercial vessels and a Japanese destroyer gets there and they have, they suffer some of the worst depth charge attacks of, of the Pacific War. So um, take our audience a little bit to that moment and why it's so important for Naval history in terms of what Bob and his crew did to survive that engagement with the death charges in the South China Sea. Sure, well,
1: after the Battle of Midway, um, the war in the Pacific for the US involves basically um, the submarines interdicting the flow of oil in tanker convoys going from Southeast Asia up to the home islands. Now, obviously, um, there's the surface battles uh, as, the, as the land forces uh, hit the beaches and, and move the uh, <clears throat> Japanese infantry back. But the crucial element was starving Japan of the oil needed to run its ships and and its planes. And uh, one submarine reports that they were lining up uh, a tanker for attack when it suddenly stopped. And they finally understood that it had run out of fuel. Um, Also, there's good evidence that the kamikaze technique uh, strategy was dictated by the fact that these planes were running on kerosene, on 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 oils pressed from pine trees. They were not running very well. Plus, a kamikaze pilot only goes one way, which is a fuel savings as well. This is a very grim situation uh, that Japan is facing. And... It is. Um, it's said by one Japanese uh, <clears throat> naval captain that uh, one could almost walk from Southeast Asia to Japan, stepping on the periscopes of U.S. submarines. Uh, they're that thick, uh, cutting off the uh, the convoys. And then the the kind of battle that that the submariners were engaging in is is very dangerous and and the routine is you attack at night you go up ahead the convoy comes up the tankers are protected by patrol boats and destroyers you get close enough on the surface so you can fire a spread of torpedoes and then you dive because the minute you fire um the patrol boats and the destroyers are going to turn on them locate them and stop start dropping depth charges. So it's a crash dive after the torpedoes are away. And then they try and evade uh, the depth charge attack that's coming from above.
0: And what I think makes this very unique, as I understand it, is that, uh, so, so they, they make this attack. Um, they're trying to sink these commercial ships. And then they're, they're spotted, they're outed. And at at that point, the the destroyer and I think the patrol boats they they have they have them in their sights, and they just go through this just teeth clenching. Was it six seven hours of repeated depth charge after depth charge after depth charge, where they can literally hear them coming closer. Um. And Bob survives this, and it's my understanding the reason why this is so unique is typically they don't survive this sort of um, depth charge. So maybe if you could just talk a little bit about that. Um, Well, yes, I mean, again, Bob as
1: narrator of of this story is absolutely unique and that he kept a a diary in which um, these things get recorded. The plain fact of it is that almost every other boat that went through this experience was destroyed uh, with all hands. And the fact that they survived is exceptional. Plus afterwards, uh, someone organized the crew to write letters about the experience, narrating what it was like from their compartment. There are stations all around the boat, all the watertight doors are shut. there's, there's a drama going on in every room. And the crew members did write down their experiences. And, and Bob was the archivist of the boat who had all these letters. And so for me, as the author telling this story, I get to move from room to room of the boat and narrate this like, like a movie. It's, it's like we've got a camera that moves around that submarine. Well, they got sent down to the bottom uh, of the East China Sea and they were damaged. They were leaking oil and water, uh, oil and air. Um, they didn't know how bad the leak was um, but in fact the destroyer above them could see the oil coming up and because it was the the their own waters, they had all the tidal charts, the current flow, and they could pinpoint where the timbre was. And They emptied their boats of of, uh, depth charges. They came down. You heard the splash. You heard the click of um, of the detonator. You sometimes, on two occasions, heard a depth charge hit the deck and roll off. One was a dud. One rolled off far enough that... The stroke of the blast shook the boat, but did not um, prove fatal. They were submerged for over 13 hours. And on the bottom, they were under relentless depth charging for a good portion of that time. They they hoped they could ride it out. They hoped that the destroyer would think they had finished them and would relent. Um, They didn't imagine they could start the engines, blow the tanks, and get away. Uh, But eventually, their situation was so dire that Captain Kefauver did say, we're going to blow the tanks, we're going to start the pumps, we're going to try and get out of here, because they were running out of air and uh, electrical power. So they made a run for it. There were more blasts. Uh, Kefauver found the, the way the boat handled on the way up, that there was a, a tide that they put the nose into the tide so that the oil and bubbles would be carried far behind them. And they eventually... Uh, decided to surface because they needed to um, exchange the air. They surfaced in the middle of the night. Um, Bob Hunt and others ran up through the conning tower, ready to man the the deck gun and and the machine guns. Um, But
0: it was all dark and they were in the clear. And you mentioned Kefauver who I understand in no relation that we know of to Estes Kefauver, but Russ, Russell Kefauver, you talk about a movie, he's almost central casting. I mean, he's the captain and we're almost getting to the end of the podcast. I feel like there's so much to explore, but I guess people are just going to have to read the book if they want to get it all. But um, Russell Kefauver at one point, I understand during this engagement, must have given up hope because wasn't he going around saying it was an honor to serve with all of the, these men. I mean, he, he's almost saying goodbye, right? I mean, am I getting that, was, that right? That was the sense of the crew. He did yeah. go apartment to compartment and
1: <clears throat> greet each boat, uh, each room, by saying it has been an honor to serve with you. Wow. Clearly, he knew the situation was dire. He had a, a, a deep attachment to the boat because... Uh, the boat had a series of captains. Most were brought in from outside uh, to take command. He was an executive officer who eventually was was made uh, skipper. And um, he and Bob had a long time relationship. And and you know, Keith Fulver was in the forward room, which which is the largest room and and which has some of the listening heads. Um, so Bob and and Russell Keith Fulver were were together during all of this. And uh, at one point, Kefauver turned to Bob and said, uh, have you ever heard anything worse than this? And Bob said, no. And Oliver said, we've got to get out of here.
0: Hmm. And uh, That was the decision. And Bob felt very honored that he was almost speaking to him as a peer, as opposed yeah. to the captain relationship. So I, you know, it, it's just, what these guys went through and, you know, they talk about the greatest generation. And I think a lot of times when you talk about that, it opens up sort of a whole can of worms that people don't, you know, they, a whole bunch of things. But I think for me, what it just really goes down to is just the sheer terror these men experienced and the stress that they were under. Um, you know, I think of the previous captain who was sort of a failure, um, was this this armbuster, Jake Armbuster? They called him Shaky Jake because he would get so stressed out when, just imagine that he would literally, his hands would shake when they would get close to an attack. And of course, that was not really projecting confidence to the men. But people like Kefauver, and that's one of the things I think the military has always tried to figure out is once the bullets start flying, who's going to succeed and who's going to fail? And they almost don't know until the bullets start flying. It's very hard to predict who the heroes are going to be and who, who the people that aren't going to be able to take it are going to be. I think of you know it, this discussion reminds me of U.S Grant Civil War. This would be classic Grant is that he was a quartermaster and he knew how to cut off supplies. He knew that his own military needed supplies, and he knew how to cut off the supplies of the, of the Confederates and to basically just cut them off at the knees because without material, without fuel, it's over. Um, And so, wow, this, this has been such an honor to talk to you. Um, And, you know, we haven't even discussed the romance in this book. There's, there's, there's like five or six different love stories within this book too, in Australia, the South Pacific, you know, reminds me of that Rogers and Hammerstein South Pacific book. Um, But it's just, it is almost, it's like Saving Private Ryan. I mean, this this has to be made into a movie at some point because it's just that good. But, but okay. I'll tell you,
1: if it were made into a movie and and we told it the way Bob told it to me, it would not be PG rated.
0: Yes, yeah. know. And you don't, you, 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 you don't keep everything out. So, you know, if you're... If you're under, you know, it's, it's, it's robust in its description of detail, not, not all of the I, detail. By this book, your are 12-year-old. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, this is the grown-ups. But, you know, it's... it's it, it, let, me, let me just say that these guys
1: thought that every time they were on dry land back at Pearl or uh, in Australia, they, they thought there was a very good chance it was their last, uh, their last time. To be uh, partying, uh, to be living under the sun, uh, on solid ground. Uh, They knew the numbers, and they lived each leave like it was their last. Wow! And and even the women in the this this war, this wartime sense of emergency. Everyone seemed to be seizing the day.
0: Yes. Yes, and you know, yeah, season the day. Um, Because the other thing that I did not catch from the book, I may have not read it closely enough, but you kept on talking throughout the narrative about volunteering for one more mission and one more mission and why he did it. You know, I hear so many people, men and women that have served in the military that, you know, of course they serve for country and pride and patriotism, but they often say, you know, I served because the men on my right, and typically in theater it tends to be men, Uh, but the man on my right, the man on my left, these are my brothers and that's why I do it. So here's what makes Bob's story even more amazing is he did 12 patrols and each one was volunteer. Each mission, one in four chance of dying and he volunteered 12 times Um, maybe if you could talk a little bit about that, and then we're going to, um, conclude the interview in here in just a little bit. Yes. Um, when I, when I spoke to
1: the editors at, at my press, the Naval Institute press for this book and told them that Bob had gone out on 12 consecutive patrols, they looked at each other and shook their heads. And they said, basically, nobody did that. Uh, well, Bob did. Uh, the The submarine force was an all volunteer force right from the beginning because I think they understood that there were going to be special stresses i mean in that environment in that in those enclosures and the, and in that style of warfare, um, there needed to be a kind of psychological resilience that's that 's unusual so it was always an all volunteer force, and once the war w- had had shown them the nature. Of that service, the statistics told them that uh, the casualty rate was one in four. And it became a kind of unofficial policy that you wouldn't do more than four missions. Um, and sometimes, you know, the submariners would do a couple and feel like they needed to have a break and they'd serve on the refit crew and maybe they'd go out another time. But every time you stepped on the boat, it was a decision uh, that you were volunteering for that kind of service. And Bob just kept going out and out and out. And I asked him, well, why did you do it? And he said, well, finally, it just came down to the decision every time I just wasn't not going to do it. And he also told me that um, partly he did it because he just had determined somehow in his mindset that he didn't expect to survive the war but he was just going to keep fighting it and and he had had so much experience and he had had so many comrades who went on to other boats and then died um you know i I think it was as you say fighting fighting for your brothers
0: yeah exactly and you know there it is um i you know it's just this incredible tale Uh, the, the book is We Were Pirates by Robert Schultz and James Shell. One of the things I'm hoping you get the opportunity to do, um, now that you're, I'm sure you're just as busy as you were retirement as you were pre-retirement, but that you get to visit the War of the Pacific Museum in Fredericksburg, Maryland, or Fredericksburg, Texas. Um, the birthplace of Admiral Nimitz, um, who personally, not personally, but did write a a, a, a a commendation to Bob. Was Bob a bronze star winner? Did he end up getting the bronze star?
1: No, he didn't. He, he should have, but yeah, he he kept his head down.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well he he you know, he 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 should have, you're right, because he had he had actually you know suffered all of this. But you know, well, several,
1: several of his crewmates after that big death charging did receive the bronze star
0: huh, well, it's interesting, the one that kept the diary did not. But regardless of whether he got the bronze star, I'm just, I'm, I'm so honored that I got to know Bob. I think I got to know Bob, I got to know Weston, I knew George Strum, all these heroes from Decorah, Iowa that served this great country of ours, and did it in a way that just, you know, I'm glad I make, I'm glad I made it through this interview without any tears to my eyes, because I just think it's amazing. But I hope it's okay. I'm going to read the concluding paragraph of this book again we were pirates robert schultz and james shell because here it's where the poetry and i i just think it's like it's I, i'm so honored that you that you took the time to read this book because here it's how it's clued it's bob looking back on his it's the very end of the book um he's looking back on his service and he's. i think he's talking to you but he said you know i can hardly believe what i did and what I witnessed as a young man. He said, I didn't figure out I was going to make it. He told me once, I just knew I wasn't going to make it. Yet now after everything, here I am. His past had become the great romance. They set ships on fire in the middle of the sea. They had all parties all over the world. And he responded to the enormity of the war that had caught up with the capacity for wonder that spilled into the afterlife. And here's the line I absolutely love because it does get into Carpe Diem. After the war, it was liberty with no going back. Just driving a car with the windows down was a great thing. Sometimes I sang, even when I drove, or Barb and I sang together. That was his wonderful wife, Barb, Barb Hunt. It was something I'd never done before. I wondered, and this is you what he had emerged from those years in the boat so apparently unscathed. When he wrote his memories, the blunt sentence seemed unshadowed, one story leading to the next in an associative flow in which cascading events left no room for reflection. Once he used the word flashback, I asked him about what flashed back, expecting a patch of darkness, but he said, the things that came back are all the things I like to remember. The parties, the sex. The darkest aspect he showed me was the set jaw and straight gaze when he spoke of the friends who had been killed, then I glimpsed the resolve and simmering anger that saw him through, that kept him going out, that provided the big story his generation shared. America had been attacked, they had set aside to avenge the wound and defeat the aggressor, and they had gone back to live normal lives. The war was an interruption, they had put it behind them, with resolve like that which they had fought. And then he's at home. He went downstairs to, the, downstairs to the archive room and back in time. And lately in a snug, his little blue bedroom where he'd huddled together, he has reviewed these pages, remembered once again, descending once more into the past. Wow. I mean, this book is such a treasure. I hope everyone gets the opportunity to read it. Um, I am going to post a link on the show notes to my website. Um, this is a fabulous book. I hope it continues to live on and inspire other people to do the screenplay on this. This is Saving Private Ryan. Good. Um, thank you so much for appearing on this podcast. Is there any take home you have for the listeners in terms of the book or Bob Hunt that you'd like to share before we conclude?
1: Well, thank you, Rockney. You're very generous. It was, it was fun to talk about the book um, and one last thing I would say is that um, I, uh, I had a wonderful trip with Bob when I flew back to Iowa and collected him, and we flew to Washington DC together. We went to uh, Senator Harkin's office. He was given a flag that had flown over the US Capitol. Wow. Uh, he got a tour of the Capitol. We pushed him around by wheelchair. Uh, we went back to the hotel, sat in the bar and had a few beers. He was having a great time and he thanked me. He said, I'm older than dirt. Now I can die. Thanks for this book. Um, it's my life. Wow. It doesn't get any better than that for an author. I mean, the, the reward of, of giving Bob this book back, um, in, 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 in small payment for his service uh, is one of the great things in my life.
0: Well, you know, and I think, you know, whenever I'm a little my day job as a lawyer, whenever I'm a little stressed out as a lawyer, I just think, oh, gosh, just think of those men on Omaha beach, mm-hmm. you know, and now I'm going to go to Bob. I'm like, Paul, oh, you're a little anxious about this upcoming hearing. What about Bob and the debt charges and, and how he maintained his resolve and his sanity and, you know, gave us this tremendous gift with his service. So, it's such such gratitude, and I think you're right. Carpe diem, um, seize the day. Live every day as if it is going to be your last. Uh, that's such a good take home. And I'm hoping I'm hoping I can interview on future future podcasts and we share this with other people. And I'm hoping to get to speak at the War of the uh, Pacific Museum in Fredericksburg sometime. Um, thank you so much for Professor Schultz. Infinite gratitude to you and for all my listeners. Stay tuned. Give us a positive review and. and Spotify, and iTunes, and all places where podcasts are heard. Until next episode of The Rocket Cast.